0: Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's Emergency Medicine Practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm here with my co-host, Nachi Gupta, and more or less 10 URIs, which he seems to be suffering from right now. We'll be taking you through the March 2018 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, Emergency Department Management of Smoke Inhalation Injuries in Adults. This month's issue is a perfect sequel to
1: last month's issue on the management of thermal burns in the emergency department. In fact, if you're paying close attention,
0: you'll definitely notice some repeated themes. Nothing wrong with a little bit of spaced repetition to really drive home the key points. Wait, a ding so early in the episode? Yep, we're getting right into it this month. And for anyone who's new to the Amplify podcast, you'll hear a... Before we give the answer to one of the CME questions found at the end of each issue. Extra helpful if you're listening with a copy of the issue right in front of you, so you can answer the CME questions live. So without any further delay... Inhalation injuries are not only frequently found concurrently with burn injuries, but in those with cutaneous burns, the presence of smoke inhalation injury increases fluid requirements, pulmonary complications, as well as overall mortality. For these reasons, among others, smoke inhalation by itself is an indication for transfer to a burn center.
1: Before we forget, this month's issue was authored by Dr. Otterness and Dr. An of the Stony Brook School of Medicine. It was also reviewed by a toxicology duo of Dr. Manini of the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount
0: Sinai and Dr. Nelson of Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. For this month's issues, Drs. Otternis and On An identified 1,100 articles associated with inhalation injuries. Of these, only 87 were applicable, and as is typical of many of the reviews we've covered so far, there were few RCTs and lots of retrospective studies. Not terribly surprising given this topic. Let's start off with some pathophysiology. In the upper airway, thermal insult
1: is usually the prime culprit, whereas in the lower airways, chemical and particulate insult causes the most damage. This, coupled with the systemic effects at the cellular level of the toxic products of combustion, specifically carbon monoxide and cyanide, lead to the increased mortality you mentioned
0: just a minute ago. And breaking it down a bit further, in the upper airway, thermal injury causes edema of the mucosal tissue via a number of different mechanisms. Worsening edema ultimately can lead to airway obstruction. Additionally, IV fluid resuscitation, a key component of burn resuscitation, can also worsen that edema.
1: The large surface area of the upper airway and numerous bodily processes dissipate most of the heat by the time smoke has reached the lower airway, so most injuries in this area are caused by the toxic effects of the chemicals inhaled and the particulates that
0: deposited there. Typical toxic substances found in a fire include chlorine, nitrogen dioxide, ammonia, sulfur dioxide and aldehydes. As these chemicals damage the lung tissue, damaged tissue sloughs off and combines with fibrin and proteinaceous material to form casts. With ongoing damage, the now permeable airways leak plasma which solidifies these casts. This causes obstruction and triggers the release of neuropeptides, chemokines and inflammatory peptides, all culminating with decreased compliance, VQ mismatch and eventually ARDS. Check out figure 1 on page 4 for some really impressive cast samples. Complicating
1: matters even further, all of this predisposes the lungs to secondary infection as well as bronchospasm.
0: Nasty stuff there. We also have to mention carbon monoxide and cyanide before moving on to the differential. Carbon monoxide toxicity contributes to up to 80% of smoke inhalation-related deaths. With a binding affinity greater than 200 times that of oxygen, it impairs oxygen delivery to the tissues and renders the cells unable to use the oxygen. It also contributes to rhabdo, arrhythmias, and myocardial dysfunction. Cyanide, which is a breakdown product
1: of plastics and common household products, also complicates inhalation injury cyanide inhibits cytochrome oxidase, which halts ATP production, leading to profound lactic acidosis. When present with carbon monoxide, cyanide has an additive effect, simultaneously
0: decreasing both tissue oxygenation and utilization. All right, so that's a great start. Let's move on to our second section of the day, the differential. The key with all fire victims is to
1: avoid premature diagnostic closure and maintain a broad differential for other traumatic conditions, such as
0: pneumothorax or cardiac or pulmonary contusions, which can all mimic inhalational injuries. In addition, altered mental status may be due to head trauma, seizure, intoxication, or carbon monoxide poisoning, among a host of other possibilities.
1: And not all respiratory distress is smoke-related. Aspiration pneumonitis, pneumonia, asthma, and COPD should all remain on your differential.
0: Alright, so with that in mind, let's talk pre-hospital care. Always remember, safety first. All victims should be removed from the fire, but remember to keep yourself safe to avoid transitioning from rescuer to victim.
1: With inhalational injuries, pre-hospital providers should prioritize
0: stabilization and expeditious transport, paying special attention to the airway. Wheezing should be treated with bronchodilators, and hypoxia and any suspected CO poisoning should be treated with 100% supplemental oxygen. If the clinical status indicates a need for immediate airway intervention, an endotracheal tube should be placed. If significant edema interferes with the placement, an LMA or similar device may be considered as well. Additionally,
1: although supported by only sparse literature, in all cases of suspected acute cyanide poisoning, pre-hospital providers should administer hydroxycobalamine. Our avid listeners
0: should already know this since we just discussed it in last month's episode. Yeah, and it's such an important point. It's worth highlighting yet again. Even in suspected cases, the evidence suggests that the treatment with hydroxycobalamin should be initiated right away by the pre-hospital providers. All right, so now the patient has arrived in the ED. Care begins with a primary survey to quickly manage life threats. After that, history should be obtained from the patient or any other available source, whether it be a witness or EMS personnel. Remember to elicit details about the mechanism of the exposure, whether it occurred in an enclosed space, the duration of the exposure, and the patient's proximity to the fire. Fire environment is also important to determine what other gases may be present.
1: Clues like cough, shortness of breath, voice changes, hoarseness, And drooling all point to inhalation injury, whereas headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, loss of consciousness, myalgias, altered mental status, hyperventilation,
0: and shock may specifically indicate a carbon monoxide toxicity. Carbon monoxide levels, and we'll talk about how to measure those in a minute, only loosely correlate with carboxyhemoglobin levels. Length of exposure and comorbidities also play a role in determining presentation.
1: And carbon monoxide poisoning has both immediate and long-term consequences. In addition to the multitude of vague presenting symptoms I listed earlier, in the long-term, carbon monoxide toxicity may cause memory deficits, fatigue, sleep disturbances, neuropathy, paresthesias, abdominal pain, gait abnormalities, vestibular abnormalities,
0: dementia, and even psychosis. In 75% of cases, the delayed sequelae do resolve over a few months, while 25% may experience permanent changes. Only 3% of CO poison patients will actually die. Cyanide toxicity
1: separately can present with headache, dizziness, palpitations, nausea, confusion, and hyperventilation. In severe cases, the patient may experience seizures, hypotension,
0: bradycardia, and even cardiac arrest. And while neither sensitive nor specific, I feel obliged to mention the bitter almond smell that may accompany cyanide toxicity. The rest of the history
1: should proceed as it would with any other ED patient, so we need not go through it. Let's move on to the
0: physical. Physical exam in a smoke inhalation patient begins as you enter the room, assessing for tachypnea and hypoxia. Next, as you approach the bed, look for facial burns and singe nasal hairs. Moving to the bedside, assess the airway, looking for soft tissue edema, carbonaceous sputum, and soot. Listen for rails, bronchi wheezing, and decreased breath sounds, all which may indicate a lower respiratory tract injury. The rest of the exam should continue as
1: usual, with assessments for circulation, neurologic disability, as well as a thorough skin exam, followed by a complete secondary survey. The percentage of total body surface area burned should be calculated
0: as well. Refer back to last month's Amplify for a more complete discussion on the different techniques. So now that EMS has stabilized the patient and perhaps even started treatment with hydroxycobalamin and you've done your primary and secondary surveys, let's talk diagnostic studies. Do note that in one study of nearly 10,000 burn victims, diagnosis was most commonly made by clinical findings alone.
1: The first test is pulse oximetry. Pulse oximetry may
0: be normal, despite significant carbon monoxide poisoning. Amazingly, in one study of almost 500 patients, 68% of patients with carboxyhemoglobin levels greater than 20 had completely normal vital signs. That's both terrifying and amazing, although I guess it does make sense. Thankfully, there's technology on the market that may provide us with a quick answer to this dilemma.
1: Non-invasive pulse co Using multiple wavelengths, this device quickly measures a carboxyhemoglobin level, among other variables, from a patient's fingertip. Unfortunately, one study found that compared to a blood sample, the non-invasive method was only 48% sensitive for carboxyhemoglobin levels over 15%, thus warranting further testing before
0: a formal recommendation. Hopefully they'll perfect it soon, because that would be an incredibly valuable tool for EMS and fire departments to carry on their vehicles, as well as for us to have in the ED. The next test to discuss is the blood gas. A blood gas gives you tons of valuable information, An elevated
1: PCO2 points to a possible progressive airway obstruction, while an acidosis may indicate decreased tissue perfusion.
0: While a venous sample may be adequate in most cases, an arterial sample allows for the calculation of a PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, which correlates with the degree of shunting. This in turn correlates with mortality as the lower the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, the higher the mortality in patients with an inhalation injury.
1: Don't forget, though, that the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio changes dynamically with IV fluid resuscitation and ventilator mode,
0: so it may be more valuable as a tool to trend response to therapy rather than to make a diagnosis. And if you're running venous samples, don't be reassured by elevated PO2s. If the patient has decreased oxygen extraction due to cyanide or carbon monoxide poisoning, this could elevate PO2 in falsely reassuring ways.
1: Blood gases also have another incredibly important use, co oximetry Both a venous and arterial gas may be used to measure a carboxyhemoglobin level, with no statistically significant difference between the two. In non-smokers, a level greater than 3% is abnormal, whereas up to 10% can be normal in a smoker. However, remember that levels only loosely correlate with toxicity, and many patients will have
0: already received oxygen while in the ED or by EMS, so don't hang your hat on a specific number. Next up, we have serum lactic acid. Although generally nonspecific, in the setting of cyanide poisonings, lactate levels rise proportionally with the rate of cyanide poisonings and the severity of the toxicity. They may even be associated with serious complications and may be used as a marker of poor prognosis. Specifically, in fire victims, a lactate of 10 is both sensitive and specific for cyanide poisonings.
1: And going back to last month's issue again... Any elevated lactate level in the setting of a suspected inhalation injury should prompt you to treat for cyanide toxicity immediately.
0: Definitely lots of overlap between this issue and last month, but all really important points. Agreed. The next test to discuss is cyanide testing, which unfortunately doesn't
1: play a large role in ED management. As cyanide has a very short half-life and the lab results can take days to return, routine serum measurement is not recommended, and the decision to treat should be made clinically. In a multinational perspective study, the most commonly seen markers of cyanide toxicity include dyspnea, depressed GCS score, soot depositions, and seizures.
0: If cyanide levels are obtained, levels of 0.5 to 1 mg per liter, 1 to 2 mg per liter, and 2 to 3 mg per liter are considered mild, moderate, and potentially lethal levels all respectively.
1: Other useful tests include a finger stick, basic chemistries, complete blood count, CPK, beta-HCG, and a troponin. In one retrospective study, elevations in troponin levels were correlated with receipt of hyperbaric oxygen therapy.
0: In another, elevated troponin levels were thought to be a marker of poor outcome. And the EKG will also be important. Carbon monoxide increases the risk of dysrhythmias and myocardial ischemia, especially in those with underlying cardiovascular disease.
1: Next, let's move on to imaging. A chest x-ray should be obtained in all patients with an acute inhalation injury, with the understanding that most will be normal or nonspecific in the acute setting. If there are pulmonary infiltrates, this is a sign
0: of severe injury and portends a worse prognosis. While a chest CT may not always be performed, it too may have a role. In one prospective study, CTs done to measure bronchial wall thickness and luminal area performed within a few hours of the smoke exposure were predictive of an inhalation injury. These same values were also useful in predicting ventilator days, development of pneumonia, and ICU length of stay. In another study, the RAD score was used to predict pneumonia,
1: ARDS, and death. Um... The RAD score? Yeah, RAD's like radiologist score. Go on. Without getting too detailed, one centimeter slices of the left and right lung are each divided into four quadrants. Through a zero to three scoring system, where zero represents normal findings, one represents increased interstitial markings, two represents ground glass opacifications, and three represents consolidation, a RAD score is calculated.
0: Um, okay, so I think it's fair to say that the RAD score can be used to predict pneumonia, ARDS, and death? In short, yes. A retrospective study found that the
1: RAD score was predictive of the composite endpoint of pneumonia, ARDS, and death. However, the correlation was only statistically significant for ARDS.
0: Got it. Moving on, is next. Fiberoptic bronchoscopy is currently the gold standard for diagnosing a smoke inhalation injury. Positive findings include mucosal erythema, edema, ulcerations, blistering, fibrin cast, charred tissue, or soot. The overall accuracy has been cited at 86%. Not bad. Bronchoscopy
1: can also be used to calculate an abbreviated injury score to grade the inhalation injury. What's up with you and the scores this week? I didn't make them up. It's just where we're at in this article. Abbreviated injury score grading for inhalation injury on bronchoscopy ranges from 0, no injury, to 4, massive injury. In one retrospective study, the abbreviated injury score correlated with increased carboxyhemoglobin levels, increased risk of ARDS, longer mechanical ventilation time, worsened
0: oxygen indices, and a trend towards multi-organ dysfunction and mortality. It's worth noting though that not only is bronchoscopy invasive, if performed too early it may miss inhalation injuries, whereas an exam 24-48 to 48 hours later may be more accurate. Additionally, bronchoscopy can only evaluate the proximal airways and doesn't get to the lowest lung parenchyma where much of the morbidity comes from.
1: Direct and fiber optic Laryngoscopy may also both have a role for evaluating the upper airway. However, as we mentioned before, even mild findings should not obviate the need for observation. Even subtle presentations may become worrisome ones as the patient is resuscitated and IV fluids flood the already edematous mucosa.
0: The last two tests to be aware of are radionuclide testing and PFTs. Briefly, in radionuclide testing, a radiotracer is injected intravenously and a failure of the damaged lung to clear the tracer constitutes a positive test. With PFTs, decreased peak flows due to increased pulmonary resistance may help diagnose an inhalational injury. Neither is typically performed in the critically ill and acute ED patient population, so don't worry about them too much. So that wraps up testing. Let's move on to treatment, beginning with just about every emergency physician's favorite, the airway. There are three absolute indications for intubation. Imminent threat of acute airway obstruction, respiratory failure not responding to non-invasive interventions, and altered mental status impairing airway protection.
1: Ideally, the most experienced intubator should be at the head of the bed with at least a 7.5 centimeter endotracheal tube to facilitate future bronchoscopy. Whoever is intubating should also have all airway adjuncts, such as a bougie, LMA, video, and fiber optic equipment, ready at the bedside in preparation for what may be a difficult airway. Additionally, you might consider an awake intubation, and just in case, also plan to have the equipment ready for a
0: surgical airway. Well, intubation is clearly indicated for some patients, many, many patients fall into a more gray zone where you think they might get worse in the near future, but are okay at the moment. Unfortunately, there are no clear-cut rules, but several studies recommend intubation in those with deep burns to the face and neck, blistering or edema of the oropharynx, hoarseness, strider, or large burns over 40% total body surface area. Don't forget that if you're on the fence with regards to
1: intubation, a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation may also be a useful intermediate as long as the patient is awake and alert and can be monitored closely for any changes.
0: Great point, but once the patient is intubated, your job is hardly done. There's a lot to be aware of. First, and this might seem silly, but be aware that adhesive tape will not stick to the burn patient's skin. Instead, use half-inch umbilical ties to secure your tube. Next, patients with severe
1: burns and inhalation injuries are likely to receive lots of IV fluids. This can worsen edema, obstruction, and even cause ARDS. Monitor intubated patients very closely.
0: Mechanical ventilation itself is an independent predictor of mortality. To minimize ventilator-associated lung injury, a low tidal volume approach should be taken with 4 to 6 mLs per kg predicted body weight, plateau pressures under 30, and an O2 sat of greater than 92%. Permissive hypercapnia is acceptable as well with a target pH greater than 7.25.
1: More recently, high-frequency percussive ventilation has become the ventilation mode of choice as it decreases lung inflammation, increases compliance and ventilation, decreases incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia, and significantly
0: decreases morbidity
1: and mortality.
0: That's huge. And lastly, recruitment strategies like proning and high PEEP may be needed in cases of refractory hypoxia. Bronchoscopy has been used to therapeutically suction particulate matter, secretions, and fibrin casts from the airway, which reduced ventilatory days, decreased ICU length of stay, and decreased hospital costs. Numerous other medical adjuncts have also been tested in the setting of burn injuries. In animal models, bronchodilators decrease airway pressures and improve the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio. Inhaled Epi has been used to decrease hyperemia and edemia, aid in bronchodilation, and lower airway pressures. Inhaled nitric oxide, a vasodilator, has also shown to be promising in animal models.
1: Inhaled heparin has been used to decrease fibrin cast formation, while inhaled N acetylcysteine, or NAC, a mucolytic, also theoretically minimizes oxidative damage. In one single center retrospective study, a statistically significant survival benefit was found for smoke inhalation injury patients who were treated with inhaled heparin and inhaled neck. Inhaled heparin alone is currently being studied in the hepburn trial. Other aerosolized anticoagulants, including TPA, have also shown promising results in early preclinical studies.
0: Wow, I imagine the consent for a burn victim for inhaled TPA would be an absolute nightmare, but maybe it'll pan out. And we haven't touched on prophylactic antibiotics, a topic that seems to always come up regardless of the issue. So, in the setting of inhalation injuries, prophylactic antibiotics have not been found to be useful and in fact increase the risk of multidrug resistant organisms. And although in theory steroids should reduce edema, there's no conclusive evidence to support the use of corticosteroids, and they're not recommended at this time. That's enough on airway management for now. Let's move on to the treatment for carbon monoxide poisoning. We touched on this quite a bit last month, and thankfully, this month's authors seem to come to the same conclusions. Would have been really awkward if they didn't. To reiterate, on Rumer, the half-life of carboxyhemoglobin is 250 minutes,
1: versus 40-60 to minutes on 100% FiO2. Hyperbarics reduces this even further. Despite some evidence supporting its use, a 2011 Cochrane Review found this evidence
0: to be inconclusive. Perhaps even more importantly, ASAP gives hyperbarics for carbon monoxide a level B recommendation in acute poisonings. It is worth noting, however, that one Taiwanese
1: study of almost 25,000 patients did conclude that hyperbarics was associated with decreased
0: mortality, especially in the young. With this in mind, Drs. Otterness and Ahn recommend either 100% oxygen via non-rebreather or hyperbarics for those with carbon monoxide poisoning and neurologic signs, cardiac ischemia, syncope, or an elevated CO level with a lower but unspecified threshold in pregnant patients. They also, very importantly, recommend the discussion with a
1: local hyperbaric center and medical toxicologists or regional poison centers. Never a bad idea
0: to request the help of an expert in these cases. And the last treatment to discuss in this issue is treating cyanide poisonings. As last month's authors concluded, hydroxycobalamin remains the first-line therapy for cyanide toxicity. That's absolutely right. Hydroxycobalamin, 5 grams
1: IV over 15 minutes, repeated once if necessary, is recommended for any severe inhalation injury with unexplained hypotension, altered mental status, elevated lactate, or a high mixed venous oxygen.
0: If hydroxycobalamin is unavailable and CO inhalation has been ruled out, the second line sodium thiosulfate and sodium nitrite can be used. Keep in mind that this therapy has increased risks of both hypotension and methemoglobinemia. I think we can leave it at that since we discussed this at length last month. Let's talk complications. Pneumonia is a very common complication of inhalation injuries, present in up to 50% of patients requiring intubation. Significantly, it also independently increases burn mortality by 40%. Additionally, ventilator associated pneumonia has an incidence of 9 to 27 percent in burn patients with a 10 percent mortality. Another common complication is pulmonary edema, secondary to inflammatory injury, and aggressive IV fluid
1: resuscitation. Up to one third of burn patients require intubation, and of these, the prevalence of ARDS is somewhere between 33 to 54 percent.
0: And lastly, tracheal stenosis, endobronchial polyps, bronchiectasis, bronchiolitis, and vocal cord dysfunction have all been reported. On to special populations addressed in this month's issue. First up, pregnant
1: patients. Although gravid mothers should be thought of as two patients, often optimizing maternal care will protect the fetus as well. In the setting of pregnant carbon monoxide poisonings, the level of carboxyhemoglobin in the fetus is generally 10-15% to higher than in the mother.
0: In addition, carbon monoxide elimination is also slower in fetal blood. As we discuss in the hyperbaric section, hyperbaric oxygen can be considered in pregnant women, especially in those showing signs of fetal distress. However, as we discussed last month, data for hyperbarics in pregnant patients with smoke inhalation is inconclusive. So it's worth considering.
1: Also worth considering is delivery of the fetus, if greater than 26 weeks gestation.
0: This decision should of course be made along with the obstetrician and burn center. Another at-risk population is the geriatric population. Advanced age is actually one of the strongest predictors of mortality in those suffering from burns and or an inhalation injury. The threshold to transport these patients ASAP to a burn center should be very low. And for this month, we have two cutting-edge topics to mention. The first is ECMO. Shocking, another use of ECMO. I think the only episode it didn't actually make a play in was the IBD episode. Well,
1: ECMO is certainly on its way to the ED. ECMO provides a means of oxygenation and ventilation while allowing the lungs to heal. In one small review, in the sickest patients, ECMO seemed to offer mortality benefit for smoke inhalation victims. As such, ECMO should remain in your playbook when other treatment
0: modalities have failed. The other cutting edge this month is point-of-care ultrasound. Point-of-care ultrasound may have a role in burn management. In one relatively new case report, point-of-care ultrasound was used to measure tracheal wall thickening, which did correlate with the CT findings. Point-of-care ultrasound can also be used to guide fluid resuscitation, but that deserves an issue unto itself, so we won't get into it. Let's move on to disposition. According to the American
1: Burn Association criteria, any possible smoke inhalation injury should be transferred to a burn center in an expeditious manner. Even with no overt airway signs, if there is any potential for injury, the patient should be closely monitored for 24 hours with a very low threshold to intubate. Observation it is. Let's close this episode out with some key points and clinical pearls. With smoke inhalation injuries, upper airway injuries are due to thermal burns, secondary to heat transfer, whereas lower
0: airway injuries are due to chemical and particulate irritants. For suspected cyanide poisonings from a smoke inhalation injury, hydroxocobalamin 5 grams IV should be administered by pre-hospital providers if available.
1: In the setting of smoke inhalation injury, the history and exam is key. Look for airway edema, carbonaceous sputum, soot in the nares or oropharynx, facial
0: burns, and singed nasal hairs, which can all indicate potential inhalation injury. A complete physical exam, including a primary and secondary survey, is essential to rule out any other acute traumatic injuries, which often accompany smoke inhalation injuries. Pulse oximetry may be falsely normal despite significant carbon monoxide poisoning. With suspected smoke inhalation, perform fingerstick glucose, lactate, troponin, EKG, pregnancy test, and a chest x-ray.
1: A venous blood gas may be used in lieu of an arterial sample to determine a
0: carboxyhemoglobin level. Levels loosely correlate with symptoms. An elevated lactic acid level in a smoke inhalation victim should raise concern for cyanide toxicity. Treatment with hydroxocobalamin is recommended while cyanide testing is not recommended in the ED setting. The use of
1: hyperbarics for carbon monoxide poisoning is controversial and remains a level B ASAP recommendation. Normobaric 100% FiO2 remains the standard of care. In addition, consider consultation with your local toxicologist, poison center, hyperbarics, or burn center for assistance.
0: Endotracheal intubation is indicated for those with deep burns to the face and neck, blistering or edema of the oral pharynx, hoarseness or stridor, or large cutaneous burns greater than 40% of the total body surface area, in addition to the more common indications. Bronchodilators, inhaled
1: epinephrine, inhaled nitric oxide, inhaled heparin, inhaled N-acetylcysteine, and other inhaled anticoagulants may all play a role in managing patients with smoke inhalation injury. Further
0: studies are needed still. There's no conclusive evidence supporting the use of corticosteroids to reduce airway edema in smoke inhalation victims.
1: Mechanical ventilation is an independent predictor of mortality and can worsen lung injury. Those with less severe injuries should be closely monitored for 24
0: to 48 hours. Caution must be used when resuscitating smoke inhalation victims as overaggressive IV fluids can worsen airway edema. Pneumonia and ARDS are both complications
1: of inhalation injury. Up to one-third of burn patients require intubation and of those,
0: 33 to 54% develop ARDS. The presence of inhalation injury is one of the American Burn Association criteria for burn center referral. Patients with possible smoke inhalation should be transferred in an expeditious manner. So that wraps up the March 2018 episode of Amplify.
1: Before you tune out, make sure to check out the new calculated decision supplement powered by MDCalc and authored by Dr. Pujan Patel, which accompanies this issue and reviews both the RADS and AIS scores.
0: Definitely worth a quick read. And after you've read through that, make sure to head over to www.clinicaldecisionmaking.com to learn more about the upcoming Clinical Decision Making and Emergency Medicine Conference, co-sponsored by EB Medicine, which will be held in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, from June 21st to June 24th.
1: As we said last month, this is definitely a can't-miss event. Great speakers, up-to-date evidence-based lectures, and a well-deserved break from the chaos of the ED, all at a beautiful Florida family-friendly
0: beach resort. And make sure to follow the EB Medicine Twitter handle at EB Medicine for updates and frequent evidence-based emergency medicine pearls. Remember to check out this month's issue of Points and Pearls for quick-hitting summaries of key points in the article, as well as practice-changing clinical pearls. Don't forget to head over to ebmedicine.net
1: slash e0318 to earn your much-deserved CME credit. It should only take a few minutes to breeze through the 10 questions after having listened to this episode. And for all of our resident listeners out there who don't need CME, did you know that EB Medicine offers free access to emergency medicine practice? Head over to ebmedicine.net slash residents to get started today. Talk to you all next month.